That's the way. Uh huh. Uh huh. Joe Lycett. Because uh, 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 uh. there was also, if Joe Lycett, then you should have put a ring on it. Some Lycett heart. Do you really Lycett? Is it? Is it wicked? I think I've done that one. I forget which ones are ideas and which ones we've actually turned into tours. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life. But what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy and the perils of instant gratification and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. My very first guest is Joe Lycett, a comedian and TV presenter who has appeared on Nevermind the Buzzcocks, 8 Out of 10 Cats and Live at the Apollo. I talked to Joe at the beginning of June when he might have been isolating in Birmingham but was all over our lockdown telly, presenting The Great British Sewing Bee, his own show Joe Lycett's Got Your Back and doing the voiceover for some pretty epic archive footage of Dragon's Den best ever pitches. Having been mildly obsessed with Joe ever since I read his rather strange and very funny 2016 book Parsnips Buttered, How to Win at Modern Life One Email at a Time, I knew that as soon as I decided to make this podcast, he had to be my first guest. Joe is a very successful comedian. You may know him as Hugo Boss. More on that later. He is nominated for a BAFTA for Joe Lysett's Got Your Back, where he takes on corporations behaving badly in order to dole out comedic consumer justice. Joe is proof, to use his own term, that it is possible to make comedy that punches up, not down. Congratulations on your BAFTA. Lovely bit of news to cut through the isolation. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. I, I, I didn't, really didn't expect it. I didn't know the nominations were coming out. I didn't know anything um, really about it. And then um, suddenly I've been nominated for a silly award, which is nice, nice thing to happen in lockdown. Does anyone ever say, I knew exactly when the BAFTA announcements were coming, I expected <laughs> one, and I received it? Yes, I feel, I feel very seen. I, Okay, I, I'll be honest with you. I was sat waiting by BBC News, knowing exactly the moment when they'd be announced. No, uh, yeah, no, they don't, I suppose. Yeah. I bet some people do, though. I bet some people are really thirsty for it. <laughs> I like that the announcement for the BAFTA on your Twitter page came almost immediately after your latest tweet to Donald Trump, which read, oh, Hey, God. babe, got any good Netflix recommendations? <laughs> Yeah, when he was in the bunker, because um, he couldn't control his country for some reason. Um, yeah, I, I haven't tweeted Donald Trump in a while. It was something I did early days. And then I realised that it was just sort of, it wasn't even touching the sides, was it? And it felt like kind of a waste of time. But um, not that I thought I'd overthrow the President of the United States with a few sarky tweets. But um I just, I, I, I suppose I became depressed with the whole situation. Nowadays, 
I've turned into a sort of slight anarchist, and I kind of want everything to kind of collapse around us. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that earnestly, but I've, I, I am now a bit like sod him, you know. So sending Saki tweets uh, is something that brings me a little bit of solace. And yeah, it, it felt like a good time because he was being such a little coward in his little bunker. Things collapsing around us might be closer, perhaps, than it than it has been. But yeah. I, I especially liked your spelling of any as. N E. It took me. It, it took me right back. Yeah. Well, my friend, for a while, when everyone was sort of on iPhones and obviously iPhones autocorrect everything, so it's all perfect English. He resisted it and would, even though he's on iPhone and autocorrect, would try and correct him the whole time. He would insist on using the most basic tech speak uh, from the sort of '90s era of Nokia thirty three tens, and I really love that. I love that sort of. Um, uh, dogged, res- re- yeah, it's dogged and and petty and brilliant. Um, so I've occasionally I will also uh, adopt the uh, the text speak of that era because it is it's nostalgic, isn't it? It's, um, and and it seems flippant. So kind of tweeting the uh, president of the United States with, uh, with text speak. Um, hey, it's something to pass the time, isn't it? I was trying to think how I would sum you up for someone who didn't know you. And I realised that the reason it's so tricky to do this is because you are the only person, I think, who could narrate both Ibiza Weekender and The Great British Sewing Bee, which is now on Series 6. You'd think that ne'er the twain shall meet with those two, but here you are, the twain. Yeah, I know. I, I've thought this a, a, a few times in my career. I remember <laughs> there was one week when I recorded Just a Minute for Radio 4, and the day after or the day before, Celebrity Juice on ITV2. <laughs> And I thought, who am I? Like, what, what's the what's the common thread here? I don't really understand how I'm getting away with both of these things. There are a few comics that straddle that, that those lines, and I am fortunate to be one of them. I suppose it's because I'm affable and agreeable, so I will sort of mould myself to whatever the um, whatever is being asked of me by the production team and the format within reason. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't really know how I've managed that really because I I always felt like my stand up what it wasn't Frankie Boyle esque edginess but uh, it's it's definitely not very gentle you know I, I, there's a few F's and Jeffs in there and um, and a bit of sexual lingo but um, <laughs> uh, it's I always thought that I wasn't probably suitable for a lot of um, the more mainstream stuff but then Sewing Bee came along and suddenly I'm the host of a very gentle mainstream show who saw that coming it's a tremendous skill to be able to distill yourself into high and low and risque and gentle. As you mm. say, there are a few people that do it, but um, I don't think it means that you're malleable so much as you're very intelligent and wow. uh, travel well. Gee, good, good Lord. I mean, I'm, Not I'm physically flattered. right now, but... <laughs> no, no. Oh, God, I would love to be speaking to you from... Uh... Ibiza, perhaps. I've seen. I've never been to Ibiza. I've narrated that show for years, and feel like the and they are kids on that show are my sort of my children, and I'm so proud of them going out there and getting their STDs. And uh, it's strange. I've never been there. I was tempted to go uh, when they were filming, but I just thought it would end up being so meta if I was ended up in the background of an episode, and I would probably end up drinking too much and doing something appalling. So um, I refrained. 
You're also doing the voiceover for Dragon's Den, which is my favourite show ever. Oh my god, I'd forgotten how good that show is. Me too. I'm, j- I'm only doing the voiceover for um for this. Uh, they've done six episodes of um, Best Ofs, and you forget the amount of amazing uh, moments there have been on Dragon's Den. And um, yeah, I. I I hadn't watched it for ages, and when when they asked me to do it, I was like, "Yeah, obviously." And then through watching the program, I've become obsessed again with them, um, particularly Deborah Meaden. I only ever want to invest in the businesses that every single dragon passes on and like yeah. laughs out the bunker. Oh. So, I mean, I'd be a I'd be a bankrupt dragon, just just a lizard, really. The first episode of the Best of series made me cry. That um, B London, who um, went in. It was one of the early series. I remember watching it and she had this, oh, what was it? Um, uh, like a nail salon business. And they all, because she didn't know her figures, she, she'd been quite successful, but she just didn't understand maths, essentially. And they all said no, apart from, oh, um, Hilary DeVay. And uh, basically she broke down in tears explaining her life story and then um Hilary DeVay kind of gave her an offer and she got all excited and I just cried I was like watching in the kitchen like this is so lovely I then googled her and it seems like the business folded (laughs) I wondered if you might be up for doing my other favorite show next Gogglebox or maybe you could just be in it in the celebrity one um so I was discussed briefly on it recently because I did a program that Grace and Perry uh hosted they covered that program on Gogglebox and used one of the clips of me. And I couldn't, because I was watching it and just, they don't warn you that you're going to be on Gogglebox. You just <laughs> turn up on bloody Gogglebox. It's like, oh my God, I'm on Gogglebox. And everyone was quite nice about it. I think they said that I was pissed most of the time, which is not inaccurate, uh, particularly in lockdown. You drew um, or painted an absolutely brilliant uh, picture of Chris Whitty. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not sure I could comment on the um, absolutely brilliant part of it that is for the um, the art world to decide but um I very much enjoyed doing it it's interesting the Chris Whitty character he's he's um he's become a bit of an art fave because he has got an unusual face and his eyes mm. are particularly um sort of uh, beguiling I suppose it's the word I'd use for them um <laughs> god those eyes he just gets me going Chris Whitty is he still propped up in your kitchen have you framed him or does he no. go to Grayson for his exhibition uh, he will go to Grayson, but for the time being, he's in my downstairs loo because when you've used the loo, it's good to be reminded to wash your filthy pig hands, which is what it <laughs> says. Uh, Imagine the things the poor man's seen. Oh God, yeah, the things. Yeah, well, yeah, he's he's had a he's had a tough life, and it's getting tougher in my in my downstairs loo. Not just your downstairs loo. Actually, I'm, I'm offended by that because <laughs> I only it's only me in the house. I'm on, in the house on my own, so it's me and the cat litter trays in there. So, and I am well, I hope you're not going lovely. in the cat litter tray. I'm very delightful in the in the toilet. I go in, I do my business. It smells of roses, and then I leave after I've washed <laughs> my filthy pig hands. Lenny Henry said recently he mm. congratulated Louis Theroux on the title of his autobiography. Mm. Got to get through this. Yeah. And he said that his other favourite title, the best wordplay he'd ever heard, was your 2016 show. That's the way I hurt hurt Joe Lycett. Because there was also, um, if Joe Lycett, then you should have put a ring on it. I think that was the previous tour. Uh, Some Lycett Heart. 
Oh, have I done Do You Really Like It? Is It Is It Wicked? I think I've done that one. Or is that one coming up? I don't know. Um, I forget which ones are ideas and which ones we've actually turned into tours. Yeah, I heard, so, a few people messaged me about that because, again, Louis Theroux didn't think that I would be on his radar. Um, Lenny Henry I've met a few times. He always shouts lice it at me when he sees me across the room, which I find um, really sweet. Um, but Louis Theroux, I wasn't sure I was on his radar. And then I think he kind of says that he likes my show titles. And I was like, oh, my God, Louis Theroux knows who I am. I'd, I'd be curious to... Do you, have you ever met Louis Theroux? No, I'd love to. I would love to. There's a bit of a... I know that lots of people find him very attractive, which I don't get. I mean, he's not... I get. I, I, it's, it, not to say that he's ugly, but he's just not my type. My type with men is very specific and very... Um, I'm a basic bitch. But, um, and Louis doesn't fit into that. I think you have to be more refined in your tastes um, to be attracted to Louis through. But um, I do find that interesting, that the sort of geeky thing it appeals to a lot of people. Is it a physical thing or is it more the sort of, oh, I'm thinking about things kind of thing? That's my impression of Luther. He's really calm in all scenarios. You know, he's been in some oh, pretty weird yes. situations in documentaries. You know, he'll just go and, how did that make you feel? And kind of yeah, adjust his glasses. I'm less about someone being calm in a situation and more about having a rock hard bod. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my type with men. As I say, I'm a basic bitch. You are known for your <laughs> consumer activism. Your new show, the one that has been nominated for a BAFTA, Joe Lysett's Got Your Back, has been described as a sexy watchdog. And you have described it as a cross between rogue traders and RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. You use lots of different aliases when you're approaching brands. There's been Samantha Salamander and Nigella Farage. Oh, yes. <laughs> and for Got Your name. Back, <laughs> yeah. you introduce your most famous... Thus far, Hugo Boss. Can you tell us a little bit about Hugo Boss, which was for a time your actual legal name? Uh, How did he come into being? And not only did he come into being, but how did he become a global sensation? Well, uh, on my programme, we take on um, companies that are doing naughty things. And we discovered that Hugo Boss, the international billion dollar company, were sending cease and desist letters, which are legal letters that essentially tell small businesses to stop using the word boss, or not even just the word boss, just uh, versions of the word, uh, things that look a bit like boss. And one company that we focused on who who had actually emailed us and and brought our attention to it were um a brewery in swansea called boss brewing and they'd received one of these letters and it had ended in loads of legal fees rebranding beers a big headache for a small business about 20 25 grand i think was how much they'd lost in the process so we took it on for them and i came up with the idea they clearly don't like hugo boss um having their name used where they don't want it to be used. But they can't stop me from changing my name by deed pile to Hugo Boss and then saying things as Hugo Boss, doing things as Hugo Boss. So that's what I did. And <laughs> I changed my name and I expected it to get a little bit of press. I didn't expect it to uh, blow up quite in the way that it did. And it ended up yeah, being essentially a global news story as getting requests from German news, Australian breakfast TV. There was... It was in India today, I think. It was all over the world. It was mad. It was a mad um, few days. They didn't backtrack. They didn't... Um, they, what we wanted them to do is to to refund Boss Brewing, which they didn't do, but they, they fired out a statement saying they'd had um, constructive talks with the brewery. I'm not sure the brewery agreed that they were constructive. I'm not sure. 25 grand in debt is 
exactly constructive. But um, yeah, we definitely illustrated the uh, the point to the uh, wider public. You tweeted, I will now make a number of statements which I really hope do not get confused with the opinions of at Hugo Boss. Yeah. Just to clarify, these are the statements of Hugo Boss, not of Hugo Boss. Hugo <laughs> Boss microbes fish in the office. Hugo yeah. Boss always asks, what percentage are you on before he lets you borrow his charger? Hugo <laughs> Boss, and this is the best, the best ending. Hugo Boss has a smelly bum bum. <laughs> Well, so the smelly bum bum is a, is in reference to I, I also in the first series um, I set up a we were doing a thing a girl Claire Leslie her name was she'd been scammed out of I think about eight grand and NatWest were refusing to do anything about it and they were sort of saying oh well it's not our fault that the person on the other end of the phone pretended to be us. Um, you shouldn't have handed over your details or whatever. Um, but it was a very sophisticated attack and we didn't really think that was fair. So to demonstrate to Nat West how easy it is to pretend to be somebody else, I noticed that the CEO of RBS who owned NatWest um, at the time, and I've forgotten what his name is now, um, he's since left, but um, I noticed he didn't have any social media accounts. So I just set them up and, and started tweeting and Facebooking and whatever um, as if I was him. So it was all very uh, bland financial stuff saying, oh, this is what we're planning at RBS and this is what we're doing with NatWest and retweeting NatWest stuff. And that built up a load of sort of financial sector followers who were interested and people who were journalists for the FT and these sorts of people. And then I started to just tweet mad stuff as him. Uh, one of which was uh, I've got a smelly bum bum, which ended up as a uh, a massive headline in the Metro. The RBS boss tweets, "I've got a smelly, bum, <laughs> I've got a smelly bum bum," um, and and that did result in them backtracking, and they gave her um, Claire Leslie all of her money back. So that that one was um, more of a success. But I've got a smelly bum bum has sort of followed me as a kind of. Um, if you see someone tweet that and it looks a bit suspicious, like it might not be the actual person, it's probably me. I like that that's become your tagline. That's brilliant that you got the money back for her. And did were there any repercussions from NatWest or RBS for your Twitter account? Oh, uh, Twitter took it down. Yeah, we, we, were, um, we were banned uh, for, for that account. But to be honest, we once the money was back, we didn't need the account anymore. Um, but yeah, it was, they were quick to get rid of it. Um, once they realized that, but they, they didn't realize, I think that it was us. They just thought it was, uh, some other thing. Cause we did, we also took a flash mob into the RBS headquarters and did a few other silly things. So they didn't quite catch on to the fact that it was, it was old Joe likes it. In Got Your Back, you like to take on scammers, great and small. Have you always been obsessed with scamming? Uh, no, not with scamming, actually. It's more with... Um, injustice. Yeah, well, just with kind of petty bureaucratical injustice where companies kind of... The computer says no um, response yes. to... Um, to what a lot of companies do. And it's um, it's demeaning. And I find that um, a lot of councils and companies do it to individuals and they get away with it because they've got the clout and they've got the, you know, often they've got um, lawyers behind them and all of that. And often they're in the wrong. Their computer's gone wrong. They've messed up in some way. And at its worst, when companies like that get stuff wrong, it can end in people dying uh or losing their life savings or um all sorts of you know just mental health issues that come from you know if you're being followed by debt collectors and all of that because of some issues so i've just i've always felt and this started this funny actually because um 
it started when I was at university. The first time I, f- I felt like, oh, this is annoying and I, I, I want to take the piss out of these people is when I was um, in uh, the second year of university, I had an issue with Virgin Media and um, basically they ended up sending me loads of uh, threatening letters. And I just felt like this isn't cool. Like these letters are clearly sent from a computer and you're threatening to send, you know, people round or whatever. And I just thought, I don't like this. I don't like the way that you're doing it. And I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. I think there'd been an, a, a miscommunication and suddenly I'm getting all these letters. Uh, ironically, Virgin Media sponsor the BAFTAs. So... I'm not sure who I'll be mentioning if I if I if I win one, um, but yeah, I um, it, that's that's where it started, and then um, it sort of spiraled from there, and I ended up with me sending a lot of letters in my stand up. That's the other thing is I find it annoying, but I also don't take anything too seriously, so I send silly stuff rather than um, particularly angry or aggressive stuff, and that was very helpful for stand up. And here we are; it's all culminated in me on this podcast today. Who is your current bête noire? My bête noire is... Who's my current bête noire? Oh, I'll tell you who my bête noire is. Actually, God, I'm livid about this. Uh, I don't... (laughs) I've forgotten his name, but I sent him an email the other day. It it, it is... I'm going to get it because there's a brilliant... And this this was alerted to me um, through a mutual friend of mine and Lolly Adafope, the brilliant uh, comedian and actress. She um, had a friend who has been helping with this campaign for a uh, cash and carry in Brixton called Nor Cash and Carry, and um, they've been there for years. And they are a vital resource for the local uh, community, particularly Jamaicans. They basically stock stuff that you don't get in Tesco and it's a real lifeline to their kind of heritage and um, culture and a lot of the recipes that they cook on a regular basis use ingredients that they can only get at Norcash and Carry. Anyway, this chap called Taylor McWilliams, who is a house music DJ and also um, owns a a company called Hondo Enterprises, I think they're called, which which own a lot of Brixton. They own the building that Nor is in and they are evicting them. Uh, they say it's because they have to install an electricity uh, substation, which is technically, from what I can gather, a lot of bollocks. And um, they don't have to do that. They're only doing that because they want to expand into other spaces or whatever. They don't have to, as far as I can tell, do it in this Norcash and Carry. And uh, the local MP has now come out saying that uh, this isn't acceptable. Jay Rayner, the chef, has uh, been part of the campaign. Uh, Mary Portis has spoken out for them as well. And I emailed him, uh, I sent it to him, and then I tweeted it publicly to kind of get a bit of um, publicity going. Um, but I, my, my argument to Taylor was that he clearly loves house music, and so do I. And I was looking into the history of house music, and house music came from, uh, the, I think it was the 1980s, from uh, black and Latino gay clubs, which uh, I mean, house music obviously is, uh, appeals to the gay community, but I was so surprised by that. And it essentially was born like so many of the brilliant cultural um, things that have happened in the last decades and hundreds of years have come out of diverse communities who have been squashed into a corner and then they create amazing art uh, to talk about their experiences. And house music is just one of those examples. And he loves the music that's come out of these diverse cultures, but mm. yet wants to suffocate mm. diversity by... Uh, closing this um, vital resource to uh, 
his local community. So um, he is my current bête noire. I would like to speak to Taylor McWilliams because he has not responded to my email uh, and seems to be burying his head in the sand on this one. And I just don't think it's cool. That's a rather more serious endeavour than what is a common component of your comedy, which is parking tickets, or rather yeah. the challenging <laughs> yeah. of parking yeah. tickets received by you. And on paper, or, or even in audio, that sounds spectacularly dull, and yet somehow you make it incredibly funny. That I think the highlight has to be when you manage to get out of a parking ticket for parking in a taxi rank in York. Anyway, you sent a picture of your car with a sign that said the moon on it to prove that actually your car was not parked in the taxi rank in York, but actually parked in outer space. And (laughs) they cancelled the fine. How the hell did that work? Do you think it's sheer persistence? Yeah, well, I'm quite dogged once once I get going with these things. Yeah, uh, that one. Yeah, so the reason I the reason I think it worked is they were saying that I was in a taxi rank and they were using evidence of a photo a photograph that they had taken. Sidebar: I was in a taxi rank and I was in the wrong. <laughs> um, so they they were absolutely right to have a go at me. But I, my issue was there with their evidence and their system essentially of taking me on because their photograph, basically, a, 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 what I'm guessing is a disgruntled taxi driver had written taxi rank in this weird chalk thing on the side of my car. And they'd taken a photo of the side of the car with the word taxi rank on it and basically said, you were in a taxi rank. And I'm like, well, hang on. Anyone could write anything on the side of the car. And then suddenly that's evidence that it was there. So that's why I wrote the moon on the side of the car and said, oh, look, I'm parked on the moon now. Like, that's not a justification. Uh, that's not evidence it wouldn't stand up in a court of law and I think they just went okay (laughs) we haven't got time for this we'll we'll quietly cancel it and that that is my top tip to anyone who has got a parking fine particularly if you're in the right as well is uh, waste these people's time a really useful way of doing that is to send them a, a subject access request which is a part of the data protection act and it means that you can request information that uh any institution has on you and they have to send it to you by law and it's such a headache particularly for anyone that has cctv cameras i did one out of interest i um you know those self-service tills they have in well i was in asda at the time and they've got like a camera on the top and it shows Mm -hmm. that they're filming you i thought "Mm, i don't like being filmed here so i emailed asda and i said i'd like the footage and and just said to them a rough time and what shop i was in which you don't even have to do and um they found it and emailed it to me weeks later. Um, this this weird footage of me just paying for my groceries came through. And so you can legally do it. It's, um, it is a protection that you have. Um, a council, I mean, the amount of information a council must have on you, it's such a headache for them to have to go through all of that. So normally, if you send one of those, not normally, but occasionally, they'll just go, we haven't got time for that. And they just uh, let the whole thing slide. Your 2016 book, Parsnips Buttered, is all about the emails you sent. Well, it's not all about, but it's a large part of it. It's about the emails you sent over the course of several years. I like that you positioned it as a self-help book that will help no one. And on the back of the book, it says, this is a comedy book and solves nothing. That's the ultimate disclaimer, really, isn't it? To be like, here's my book, but don't expect it to do anything. Um, And I take no responsibility for it. Yeah. I mean... uh... I, I feel like a lot of books should have that on the back. Um, I wish I could put that on mine. <laughs> it'll solve nothing. I think I was just being facetious, essentially, because lots of people have said that they found parts in it quite useful. Probably has solved some problems in people's lives. Um, yeah, it tackles I, some very real anxieties and trivialities yeah, in modern yeah. life. I mean, you write, life is hard. We are a bombarded generation. There's Twitter, Instagram, taxes, 
newspapers, adverts for balding, the Panama Papers, watches that read your pulse, terrorism, gluten-free bread. There's such an onslaught to the senses these days, it's a marvel any of us managed to get out of bed. God, I love bed. I think a lot of people are feeling like that right now. And about bed as well, actually. I tell you what, I've always been a big fan of napping, but I've worked so hard over the last few years. Yesterday, I had a two-hour nap. And then I woke up and I was a bit groggy for about half an hour, an hour, but I had nothing to do. So I was just groggy for a bit. I mean, that that is one of the joys of lockdown is that you can just fall asleep at will. um, And you do have to find your joys. Um, We are a bombarded generation. And I I can't remember the the exact numbers, but uh, I remember reading that the average person pre the printing press, which is the same species as us uh, now, but um, in obviously a very different era, was exposed to something like half the number of words or printed words over their entire lifetime than you would receive in a daily newspaper. Not only have we got a newspaper, we've got all the newspapers and Twitter and Instagram and all of the information that's coming at us. And I think there's there's been never been a time when there's so much data and information going into the human brain. And I don't think we know what effect that has. And I think we know to some degree that I did a digital detox on Saturday and it was bliss. Just left my phone upstairs. and um, I, I mean, love it, doing those. Yeah, I, I hadn't done one for ages. I was like, oh, I just got on with loads of stuff, just read loads of books and so It was like really productive. My favourite of your book is the glossary of unacceptable terms at the back, which includes some of my least favourite phrases. Uh, for example, here is your £65 parking fine, hope you're well, which made me laugh because... A company on refusing to refund me something pandemic related recently ended their email. Hope you and your family are well and safe, which I just yeah. thought was such a glorious fuck you. Yeah. It's so wonderfully passive aggressive yeah. when someone ends an email with hope, hope you're, well. you're well. Yeah. It's fine if you've sent a nice email and then you go, I hope you're well. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, doesn't, it's, it's empty. It's nothing. I mean, I write it all the time on my emails. But um, if you find somebody or if you've given them bad news or whatever, I'm not sure you can put hope you're well at the end of it. How do you feel about have a beautiful day? That's quite, I mean, depends who it comes from. If that came from my housemate Ben, I'd find that funny. Um, Yeah, if it was sent earnestly. What about Chris Whitty, if it came from him? No, I'd love that. (laughs) I'd get quite emotional, actually, if Chris Whitty said have a beautiful day to me. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Penguin Audio. If you like what you're listening to, you might enjoy my new book, an audiobook, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? In my book, I expand on the talking points explored in this podcast, as well as going deep into many more topics. From faster-than-fast fashion to millennial burnout, the explosion of wellness to the rise of cancel culture, I interrogate the stories we've been sold and the ones we tell ourselves. This book is my invitation to sit back and take a breath, to stop worrying about the answers and start delighting in the questions. How Do We Know We're Doing It Right is available at all good bookshops and online, and the audiobook is available to download now from Apple Books, Audible, and all audiobook retailers. Thank you very much to Penguin Audio. Where is the line between productive and impish drawn for you? I wondered specifically about this vis-a-vis the then mayor of Birmingham, Yvonne Mosquito, opening your kitchen extension because you had a ribbon and everything. Yeah, 
It was a big event. The um, local news presenter, Nick, uh, Nick Owen, who is so lovely, he presents the um, Midlands Today, BBC Midlands Today, he introduced a story um, about the the mayor coming and he said um, it started off as a joke and then it became a thing and I think that's uh, essentially a brilliant way of describing my entire life that most things start off as a, a bit of a joke and then for some reason they become a thing and um, I've noticed so there's a day that uh, my housemate Ben who I um, referenced earlier we refer to as the best day ever because um, I woke up I was writing for a tour I woke up I was like I'm not going to drink today I'm going to stay home I'm going to write 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 I'm going to you know produce five minutes of stand up and it's going to be excellent and Ben was like I'm going to the pub to um, have lunch do you want to come for lunch and I was like yes I'll come for lunch but I won't have a drink and then he was like I'm gonna have a pint when we got to the pub and I was like I'll have one pint but then I'll go back and write and then we ended up just getting trashed, wandering around Birmingham, having a brilliant day. It was a gorgeous sunny day. We went to all these different bars, had all these different, like just wandered. And in our chats, just wandering around discussing things, so many ideas that I was jotting down because I was in a slightly, you know, I had that guilty feeling of I need to be writing, but I wasn't writing because I was getting drunk. I still had that part of my brain that was going, you need to make something, you need to do something, while the other side of me was like just pissing about in central Birmingham. And I produced actually usable material that ended up in the tour through that day. And it, it was this sort of perfect meeting of impish and, and productive. So I don't think there is a line. And if there is a line, I'd love to know where it is so I can nail it. But actually, I find particularly uh, in lockdown being productive really challenging, which I'm I'm not punishing myself for at all. Uh, my friend, the great writer Sarah Churchwell, uh, said to me, Joe, nobody is producing their best work right now. If you're producing your best work right now, you're a psychopath. And I thought that was so helpful because it is, you know, this is a this is a crisis. This is a, a catastrophe. This is bodes well um, for this entire podcast series, which has been created <laughs> in its entirety. <laughs> in lockdown but the picture of you with Yvonne is so lovely you look so happy your hands are clasped together oh, in bliss I can't believe it's, it's happening that's the it's thing. like it's it's pure it. contentment there's a sort of serenity it's wistful she was brilliant actually she um she wrote a really funny speech about how it was a really momentous day for Birmingham and she was well you excellent. did raise you raised three grand for charity as well didn't you yeah I mean that was a very much a side that that was almost a kind of bribery really to get her to <laughs> but yeah I was that was the other thing is so we we raffled tickets to the general public because she said she wouldn't come unless it was a public event because she doesn't do private events so I was like all right I'll make it a public event and we'll sell tickets and thousands of people uh, wanted to come so that's where we raised the money uh, which was extraordinary really amazing one of your most infamous moments is probably doing a black country accent for Nicole Kidman on the Graham Norton show they do they're very thorough on Graham Norton they ask they do very long briefing calls with you to find out what you want to talk about and I have uh, always wondered about that because I'm like how did they have that story just ready to go um, now mate, we know thank you very much so it's so well produced that program they ring you a couple of times if I remember rightly and they go oh what's you know what's been going on and you talk about all sorts of different things and they've been to watch your stand-up show so they know what you talk about in your stand-up as well and they're really across it and um 
they kind of do the first interview and then they do first interviews with everyone else. And then they kind of come back to you and say, ah, oh, so-and-so's got a story about this. And you remember you mentioned that little thing. Is there any more you've got on that and whatever? And it becomes like this curated um, stories. And, and, and Graham just tees you up and off you go with these stories. He's, he's like a kind of um, air traffic controller for stories, bringing them in. It's brilliantly done. And um, yeah, so they, they wanted me to talk about the Black Country accent because I've talked about it elsewhere. And um, trying to explain that to Nicole Kidman uh, was a, a challenge, but um, one that I, you know, was happy to do. And that is kind of the role on that show as a comic is to kind of just go on and be a bit daft and whatever and and, and, and do something a bit more regional, a bit more kind of common. Uh, Brummage, sort of quite like that, all right. Um, I don't understand a word you're saying. Oh, you should go to the black country. That's where it's real fun. Um, <laughs> so in the black country, they, they, they've got Dudley. proper, like, Dudley. They sort of talk like, oh, I've that. got no neck and no future. <laughs> <laughs> it's home for me i mean i don't i'm not from the black country but hearing that accent brings me home and um i find it really reassuring and it's also hilarious because they have their own sort of uh language some of them um and um there was a couple of black country women who were on this morning and uh, like really elderly women and it's a black country thing as well that they used to eat and they still do eat raw sausages i mean and literally we're not talking like Waitrose finest. We're talking Ooh. a bag of Richmond from down the corner shop. They just smash those in raw. Um, they're they're extraordinary people. What uh, if that makes you quite hardy of stomach? Well, I think yeah. That, I think that's what they why they kind of all do it. I want to ask you about your views on the evolution of comedy and the removal of some shows recently from streaming platforms that made jokes at the expense of minorities or vulnerable people. Matt Lucas has said that he wouldn't make Little Britain now. He called it a more cruel type of comedy than I would do now. And Lee Francis has apologised for dressing up as the black TV presenter Trisha Goddard. Do you think it's right to remove these shows? And is there any comedy that you regret making in the past? It's a really good question. Um, I like to think, but I'm sure there are multiple examples where I've failed to do this, but I like to think that um, I have, with my comedy, I've, I've punched up, um, you know, all, all of the stuff that I do with, you know, companies and whatever. It's all about taking on people that um, should be taken on. H- however, when you're starting out in comedy or when you're trying anything creative, whatever, you get it wrong sometimes and you pick on the wrong people. And, and there have definitely been times when I've... I've, I've, I've attempted a joke and then I've thought, mm, you know, I've, I've done it a few times at new material gigs and I've just thought that doesn't feel right for whatever reason. And actually that's because uh, the victim of the joke, it's, it's unfair, you know, it's unkind. And so I try to write with that as a general rule, you know, try and, as I say, punch up, uh, but get sometimes get it wrong. Literally, like some stuff only works in the gig that you're at. And it's written for that event and, and, and it's it's ad-libbed for that moment or whatever. And it's totally transitory and it's thrown away. And sometimes that goes wrong and sometimes people end up saying the wrong thing. In terms of uh, historical stuff, I'm really on the fence with it, really, because a lot of stuff, uh, I mean, there's comics like Bernard Manning back in the day who were just appalling, openly racist, horrible uh, comics and and have been called out for that. They were called out for it at the time. I remember um, him doing that an interview with Mrs. Merton and she was very, very brave and sort of, um, you know, said, 
you're racist. But he was. He was a racist person. Uh, but yet there was a massive, um, massive audience for him. And then there's, you know, more uh, modern comics who've, and I'm talking like sort of Jim Davidson era of people that, um, who, you know, did openly do racist stuff. Well, he changed part of his routine, didn't he? That yeah. He I, uh, well, on, on one occasion, I don't know whether he continued doing that routine in the new way, but yeah, he used a, a racially, um, and unnecessarily as well, it didn't add anything to the joke, not that it's ever necessary to be racist in your stand-up, but um, he uh, he used a, a term that didn't add anything to the story. It wasn't a punchline or anything. It was literally just there. And I just, uh, I asked him why it was there. And the next gig that we did um, a few hours later, he changed it and... Um, I don't know whether that was just to kind of make a bit of a point that he could do what he wanted or whatever. I don't, I don't really know what the psychology of that was. I wanted to end the interview on uh, Matt Baker and the Pigeon. I think the point I was making there was less um, about Matt Baker and more about the, about the press and how easy it is to kind of... Um, how thirsty they are to take somebody down. So I, I devised this fake story that I'd seen. Um, <laughs> I'd seen Matt Baker in Soho kicking a <laughs> kicking a pigeon. I'd forgotten about this, so I'm, I'm making myself the the past me is making future me laugh. I said to the Sun that I'd gone to the Guardian, and they were like, "Well, you obviously didn't." But it became this <laughs> became this ridiculous. Uh, exchange where they were like okay can we see the picture and I was like my lawyers have said that we can't show you the full picture um but here is a cropped version of it and they just sent them a picture of a pigeon and uh it, beca- it just became more and more ridiculous I need to revisit that because I that's I, I loved that routine I loved doing it, it was, I, I always I always I know when a routine's good because I'm laughing as I'm telling it and that <laughs> yes. I'm like I can't wait to say the next bit and that was one of those I like I always got a bit giddy when I was telling that story because it was um it was so funny and I've I've since spoken to Matt Baker and he I, I, I was on the one show and he was like what's your problem mate but in a really kind of a charming way as he does and I've also spoken to the uh the journalist who um who I was exchanging with because he, he got he quite into it didn't he he totally yeah. he totally played you at your own game yeah, right through to the end yeah he was absolutely brilliant but yeah once I've got something like that that was a joy I remember I remember the whole thing actually I was in a coffee shop in Birmingham and I was sat uh firing off these emails and then when I was getting replies I was like talking to the barista who's um opposite me and saying like look at this reply what do I say back to that like you know it was all exciting and like it all happened very quickly that routine um but yes I have um I'm very much um on speaking terms with Matt Baker should clarify he has never to my knowledge kicked a pigeon it would be unlikely it would be unlikely wouldn't it thank you so much for coming on to doing it right Joe Lysett an absolute pleasure. And that was the very first episode of Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, and the magnificent Joe Lysett. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts so you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday. Mm-hmm.